0: you're listening to the vocal fry podcast your weekly dash of voice science pedagogy and pop culture coming to you from your semi-occluded vocal tract have you practiced today
1: all right vocal fam we are excited. Welcome back, everybody. It's October. It's getting cool. It's fall. Is it really getting cool, though? I made white really? bean chili for my wife this week. It was really quite lovely. I made chicken and dumplings. Uh, anyway, we are excited that we have a guest with us this week. We have Carrie Obert. Carrie, welcome to Vocal Fry.
0: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be invited to do this.
1: We are excited to hear about some of your work with twang and other things of of this wonderful nature but um Carrie tell us a little bit about your background tell the vocal fam kind of how you got to whatever you are. you are right now.
0: Okay, well, you know, I think 20 years ago my story was probably a little bit more unique but I there are so many people doing this kind of work now that uh, that I think it's not quite as as unique as it once was but when I it's still uh, unique it's still it's still my own story but um I was like like many people who have kind of bridged science and art and music and and um I was musically inclined as a child and I was in the band and choir and leads and musicals and things like that and so I went off to college and Wasn't entirely sure if I wanted to be a band director, a choir director, do drama or what I wanted to do. But I I ended up landing in the musical theater department at Mars Hill, what's now called Mars Mars Hill University, but it was Mars Hill College at the time. And they were one of the few places that actually had a musical theater performance degree uh, in the 80s. And so, I uh, went off and got a musical theater degree. And while I was there... Uh, jo Estel came to the campus as an invited lecturer, and she did a workshop, and I was so inspired by what she did and how she was able to make such amazing transformations with people in the master class settings, and I thought, you know, I, I don't really know exactly what I want to do with this, but I knew that that was a pivotal moment, and I knew that I wanted to do something Along the lines of what she did. So when I graduated, there was an opportunity. Joe was writing her first kind of workbook sort of thing. And there was an opportunity for someone to go and be her right-hand person, and um, I always say Jo Estelle was always old when I met her. She was probably only in her late 40s or early 50s, but she was already in a state of osteoporosis, and she was already having knee problems, and so she had mobility issues uh, even, even in, in her 50s, and so she really needed somebody this was you know this preceded the era of being able to just go online and download an article and (laughs) and, right so i you know she needed somebody yeah she (laughs) needed somebody who could you know run up to the New York Public Library and photocopy a journal and bring yeah. it back to her. And so, I was hired and spent time with uh, there with her for a year, working as kind of an intern type person. And in exchange for that, I Got to sit at the feet of the master, you know, and learn yeah. from her, and so it was a great experience. I'd, I'd uh, i I lived in a convent during that time, and apologies, oh. my my pup is has seen a squirrel or something here, but um, <laughs> at any we, rate, we have we have dogs barking say, on the podcast all the time. It's usually my dog losing her mind. Yeah, well, they they love to guard the house here, so they're they're yes. sitting here on duty this morning. They've clocked in, but at any rate, I'd you know. I lived in this convent. Somebody had found me really cheap housing in this. Old convent that was sort Amazing. of going That's under, terrible. and so I paid, you know, really small amount of money to live with the retired nuns who lived there, and um, but I'd, <laughs> I'd I'd sort of walk down, you know, to her apartment every morning past Lincoln Center and and all these places, and Joe would have me pick up a a cinnamon coffee from a certain coffee shop, and I'd get her pecan pastry and and go to her apartment, and I'd have whatever journals and articles and things she had asked me to bring and and so she'd sort of have her breakfast and do the the crossword puzzle in the New York Times she loved to do that and I'd sit across the table from her and at some point she'd look up and and she'd finally be ready to to talk a little bit and we'd discuss those articles And she'd say, well, what'd you think of that? And I can remember saying things like, well, and then I would regurgitate the information, you know, from the summary paragraph. And she would say, I I don't want to know what you, I don't want to know what the article said. I want to know what you think.
1: Ah, yes.
0: And, And so I always say that she really taught me to think critically during that time. And uh, so, at some point while I was there working with her, Joe got an invitation to come to Ohio State and to do some research there with Dr. Fujimura. And she needed assistance. Like I said, she had some mobility issues. And so, she invited me to tag along. And I was from Ohio, so I thought, great, this will give me a, a chance to go home and visit the family, and and so we came to Ohio State for that week, and I met the world famous physicist Dr. Fujimura, and um, he great speech science guy, and I thought, okay, maybe this is my next path along the way you know maybe speech and hearing is where I need to be and so uh, you know this sort of organic process of just kind of falling into one experience after the other I, I came to Ohio State and I got my master's in speech pathology and spent a summer working with Joe Stemple, and learning mm-hmm. to do the vocal function exercises and Bernice Claibin, And and that was such a great experience because, you know, I, while well, I say I learned critical thinking from Joe and then I spent a summer with Joe Stemple, and learned so much about the art of simplicity there
1: yeah. because,
0: you know, those vocal function exercises are, are really simple totally. and, and up until that point in my internships at Ohio State, I remember trying so hard to be impressive and mm-hmm. so a client would come in, you know, you'd work with your first articulation disorder or something with some little kids who can't say their their consonants correctly or something. And and I can remember I'd you know spend hours creating activities and and I wanted to tackle it from multiple directions and and just trying to pull out every resource I knew. And then I went to Joe Stumples where we spent a summer going, ooh you know, for as long as you could on one breath. And and people got better with those exercises. Wow. And I can remember thinking Wow, there's really something to being. Uh, in, I, I sort of took home that summer and thought, I want to be effective. I don't want to be impressive, oh. and 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 really kind of taking that to heart. So when I left, when I left that internship, I was able to be hired. By the Ohio State University and the Voice and Swallowing Disorders Clinic, and at that time there were uh, there was just a small handful of uh, laryngologists, bona fide laryngologists, around the country, and I was mm-hmm. fortunate enough, fortunate enough to work with one at Ohio State, and so I spent the next almost twenty years there. Again, I sort of. F- Feel so lucky because I've just gotten to sit at the feet of these giants in the industry, and uh, and learning from them, and you know soaking in so much information, and and learning from related fields, you know from neurologists and pulmonologists, and and uh, being able to collaborate uh, along a, a wide variety. So, at some point, I, I became a mother and
1: uh, <laughs> yeah it happens to all of us it, well, yeah yeah to some of us, to Does some it? us i should say
0: yeah and and my son at the time was was in need of of uh my son has some special needs and he needed you know some speech therapy of his own and and some appointments and lots of things and i i found myself needing to hire people to go take him to those things and feeling like, oh gosh, you know, this is this is terrible. I can't be present with him for for what he needs. So, I decided to leave the university and uh, to kind of go into more freelance type work where I I do a little bit of home health. I teach out of my own studio. I do things here and there and and I teach workshops and things and and but that gave me a little more flexibility. He's he's now seventeen. He's doing really well by the way. So um, you know, we, we got through those years. But um and and I've also been lucky enough all these years to remain adjunct faculty at the university and 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 for research purposes. So I'm still able to run up there occasionally and run a subject or use the equipment or access the library resources. And, and so, um, yeah, that kind of brings us to now.
1: Um, that's awesome. I just want to hit on a couple of things you said. I, the, first of all, the statement, Boy, if you could sum up a great philosophy for me in a sentence, I want to be effective, not impressive. That was that. Uh, how about Is that? Is this
0: another one for the clip oh, show? Oh, man.
1: Wow. I want to be effective. Vocal fam, may all of our desires to be to be effective and not impressive. Wow, that's great. Wow. Um, okay. Second thing. So when you were working with Estol, that was after she had been at Syracuse.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: Um. Uh, so I I never got to meet Miss Estelle. Never had the honor. Um. But I, my funny Joe Estelle story is, you know, I, I was a mentor of Don Miller, and Don Don was a great storyteller. But sometimes it wasn't clear until the end what what story he was telling. <laughs> and he he was like, well, you know, when I was at Syracuse, um. Uh, he 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 talked about just walking down to the speech lab to try to learn some things because Marty Rottenberg was there at that point. But also, he yeah. said, and then I met this this young woman uh, when very interested in musical theater. Her name was Jo Estel. It was you may have heard of her. Oh, yeah. I was like
0: yes, yeah, yes, Don. Possibly. <laughs> yeah, we've heard of her. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yes, Don. I know who you're talking about. Oh, well, okay. Um,
0: <laughs> well, you know, she was she really was a pioneer. I mean, I think about t- totally the work that she was doing in the the 70s and 80s and, you know, uh, taking 30 hours of electives and speech and hearing in her master's degree and, you know, kind of having early insight and and curiosity to want to know what was happening inside as she was singing. And so, uh, you know, I think now all these years later, people sometimes criticize, but I think, what she did was so revolutionary and so pioneering at that time. And there were very, very few people doing the kind of work that she was doing. And, and so I, I, still, I still hold her near and dear to my heart. And uh, we all know that my research has kind of moved on to some other things and, and um, you know, she didn't have all the answers, but she was certainly laying the groundwork for some of the work that people are doing now.
1: You know, and I think that sometimes uh, we're too quick to just – either we – from a research standpoint, it's an interesting perspective you just shared, and I I, I really appreciate it, because sometimes we either are unwilling to – let our research maybe move on from where our mentors were thinking and where you know these legends in the field, but that doesn 't mean that we shouldn 't also still hold them up for the groundbreaking work that they did mm-hmm. I mean you know I, I, when when Christian Herbst was on the podcast, he was talking about Vandenberg and the fact that you know we should certainly still appreciate the work that Vandenberg did for all those years. And yet, as Christian, I'm quoting him, not me. We've been cleaning up his mess for sixty years, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> so I mean, it's just. I mean, it's it's it's. It, she was, Esther was really quite a pioneer. I mean, particularly one of the first people talking about non-classical singing. Sometimes, which that's is that's
0: right. Thank yeah. thank
1: God. Um, yeah,
0: and she was always polarizing. I mean, she was you know sure. she was she was a female doing research in a predominantly male-dominated industry, mm-hmm. and she was very short, <laughs> very, you know, very petite person, short and and so I think, I, you know, I think sometimes she had to yell to be, for people to pay attention to her, yeah. and, um, but, you know, she, like I said, she she really was a pioneer in so many ways, and I, I do like to, and I hope that someday people look at my research and and appreciate it for what it is and was for this time and if later there are things that are shown to be inaccurate or wrong or uh, you know I hope they know that somewhere in the the world beyond or whatever I'll be cheering them on because Absolutely. you know Jo used to say that she used to say I, I hope you continue the research and, and I hope I'm able to help it from wherever I am and um, you know so I often think even though my research now Contradicts some of what she taught. Mm-hmm. I, I'd like to think that she's somewhere, uh, you know, out in the world somewhere, in in the in the in the great scheme of whatever comes next. I hope she's there cheering me on.
1: I'm sure she is. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Well, with that in mind, uh, so I, I I wanted to have you on to talk about Twang because I've just been so thrilled with the work that that you've done there. Mm-hmm. So could you give the vocal Fam kind of a definition of the word and what we're talking about.
0: Okay, so the word really appeared in, in vocal pedagogy literature as early as the 1920s, 1930s. And so it really preceded sort of its use in country music or country dialect. You know, mm-hmm. the country music... Uh, era really began in sort of the late 30s into the 40s. And so, uh, people were studying this as a pedagogical thing as early as the 1920s and um, Sir Richard Paget's book, Speech Science, talked about uh, twang as a quality that evidently he thought only Americans possessed because he talked about an American oh. twang, uh, which was, he called it, you know, not wholly nasal. Um, so, it was a bright piercing quality that was not wholly nas- nasal. So, it's always been kind of a perceptual term. And right. then later on, um, we started hearing references to it and country music as both uh in both use for dialect and for also as a voice quality. So Joe Estel did not invent this term. This term was was being well researched. You can read it in Venard. I mean the you know the the great Venard was talking about twang and so there were all sorts of references to this word as as a perceptual term that it yep. had a bright piercing quality that some people perceived as nasality. And so Joe picked up on that and wanted to do some research into it and again she was she was doing uh, some endoscopy studies in the 80s with uh, Eli Yanagasawa and uh, she would drive up to his uh, medical facility or his research facility and um, she would take a handful of singers with her and they would produce what she thought was a twang quality and so they would kind of create this yeah this bright sounding voice and they would scope them and she would make her observations and then present it at the voice foundation or publish those results in a journal. so, I, I sort of, you know, cut my teeth on this concept that uh, that was in line with what joel still thought, which was she thought that the area epiglottic sphincter narrowed to create this uh, boost in resonance in the sort of two to four kilohertz range that created um, uh, an increase in brightness in the voice and but when i got to ohio state and was scoping people you know i've done about 20,000 uh 20, 000 endoscopies in my Did career you hear that
1: vocal fam 20,000 not not 20 20,000 okay 20,000
0: and you know joe was scoping eight or 10 people at a time but you know we were scoping people and had found great great use to adding uh this this brightness to the voice with people who had hypophonic or weak voices so um there had been some research done that had shown that it was quite helpful Uh, dr kimberly steinhauer done some research uh that had shown it was really helpful to people even with paralysis paresis uh weakness bowing that kind of thing And so, we were often scoping people and asking them during the initial evaluation to try to produce a a twangy quality as um, something that, to see if they were stimulable for therapy, to see if this might, you know, if we thought we could get somewhere with therapy or were we going to send them perhaps for a vocal fold medialization procedure or something. And so, I was always looking at um, this, this idea of twang or this idea of adding this component. And what I found was that when people produced uh, what what we would perceive as twang, um, I was seeing this pharyngeal wall narrowing, this kind of wasting, as some people have called it, uh, mm-hmm. and it's above the larynx. And I was not always seeing epilaryngeal or areopiglottic narrowing. Mm-hmm. And I began to question whether or not that was even correct. So, I I really began in earnest, to look at this, gosh, probably 15 years ago or something, you know, began just having this curiosity about it and uh, eventually was launched more formal studies and began to look at it in earnest because, you know, the, the epiglottis is connected to the base of the tongue. And so, epiglottic, air, kind of airy epiglottic movement is entirely dependent upon. Um, tongue movement. And we know this from swallowing. For example, when, when the epiglottis does not retrovert over the larynx correctly, uh, we don't do twang exercises to try to fix that. We do tongue exercises to try to fix it because it means that the person, when they swallow, the tongue has not pushed back, um, to retrovert the epiglottis over the larynx. So I, uh, you know, I just began to connect the dots and think I, I don't think. Because we, when you watch somebody who is actually speaking or singing, that epiglottis, you know, it's open, it's closed, it's open, it's closed, it's moving, it's it's shifting, and it's and it's going in tandem with what the tongue does. So what you know, I always say, what the tongue does, so does the epiglottis, right? Because they are connected by this ligament. And so, uh, you know, I remember reading that things like singers' formant and twang were were not dependent on vowel. That they happened regardless of the vowel, and so I kept thinking. Well, you know, if the epiglottis is shifting so much with every vowel, how can that be responsible? How can this area epiglottic sphincter be responsible for producing something that is so consistently present? Yeah. Mm So I began to think. I think there's something else involved here, and I think it's pharyngeal walls. And I think I think Joe. When, when they were scoping, I think they were too low to see it because when you, ah, when you pass the endoscope, you know, you, you go past that area and, and you're always trying to get the best view of those vocal folds. right? Yeah, yeah, because, you know, and I could, Im- I could imagine them in the 80s not knowing anything, yep. just kind of going in and going, we're going to get a real good close-up look at the larynx and see what we see. And they went right past that region that would have been narrowing sort of above. The, Which of course the, uh, is where,
1: the, I mean, yeah, but I mean, that's where the resonance is. I mean, that's the hollow sh- shape where the resonance can happen, Yeah.
0: Well, and the truth is it's hard to, it's hard to see at that point because if you get too much pharyngeal narrowing, it literally wraps, if you're doing a nasal scope, it literally wraps around the endoscope and, and, Mm -hmm. and the light is reflected back up into the camera and you get what's called a whiteout effect. You don't see anything. And so they would have been trying to get a best view and get around all that so they Mm -hmm. could see because they would have, they would have. Perceived that that was actually blocking their view, right. and so I, I think the I think the camera was too low, and I think they were getting a, a false sense of narrowing there. The epilarynx does narrow. When we narrow those pharyngeal walls and when we pull the tongue back, we do get narrowing. So, I think there are times when we see it and we think we're seeing it and we think it's attributed, but it's not the consistent finding. And that's what we wanted to look for. What is there all the time when people perceive twang? What is the consistent finding that we see across all subjects all the time, regardless of the vowel, regardless of speech, Singing, regardless of what we're doing, it is the consistent thing that is always there, and it is that pharyngeal narrowing that is uh, superior to the epilarynx.
1: You know, so, one of the on, on that note, just before we move, just before you continue, also, I, vocal fam, if you have a chance, if you own your own copy of like a 3D uh, digital body atlas, something like Visible Body or something like this, if you actually search and highlight the area, epiglottic muscle. You also realize how remarkably tiny it is. I mean, it is a really thin piece of muscle. That I mean, if it were solely responsible for something, it would be kind of be impressive, right? Um, so, and anyway, please.
0: Right. Yeah, and that's the other thing. I started working with a, a the cadaver team at Ohio State, and uh, the the uh, anatomist there, or the person who who heads up those the cadaver, the dissection. Um, and Karen Perda, who was one of our PhD students and she was doing cadaveric dissections and she said it's like dental floss there are a few <laughs> fibers there it's like dental floss it doesn't even connect to the epiglottis so the ability for it to pull the epiglottis to retrovert that epiglottis it's not there those fibers actually kind of fan out into the lateral walls of the pharynx and so there's really no potential for that muscle to do what we were crediting crediting it for doing and so i so i feel satisfied that we've hit the right thing you know and It's interesting. I also feel pretty satisfied that this is what most of our sopranos use and why we don't see singer's formant in them. Singer's formant is a different thing. Mm-hmm. And ring is a different thing than twang. And when I first started this research, I thought, oh, it's the pharyngeal walls that are responsible for both, right? And maybe one has a low larynx and one doesn't. And, you know, so when we when we perceive twang, the larynx is higher. And when we perceive ring, the larynx is lower. But then I I later discovered tongue root activity. And so I've kind of since changed because I was initially. Thinking that that this might be responsible for both, but um, but you know, I think one of the reasons we haven't seen singers form it in sopranos is because when we go up the scale, we naturally narrow the pharyngeal walls. We naturally do that because it's part of pitch raising, and so the the pharyngeal walls narrow particularly in the the very top third of our range they're they're nearly touching each other at the top of our range i had done some pitch study a while back just looking do we all narrow at the same place where do we start the narrowing it, does it differ by voice type you know i'd started to kind of go down this path to look at the contribution of pharyngeal narrowing to pitch change and why do we do it is can can you elevate and actually make pitch can you elevate pitch and and not Narrow the pharyngeal walls, so I was interested in sort of all of these questions and um but we really can't. We, you know, it's a part of the pitch raising mechanism to narrow the pharyngeal walls. So, when singers come in and they think they make all this space, it's it's the absolute yeah. opposite of that. In fact, it's considered abnormal if they cannot, narrow, you know, if they don't narrow the pharyngeal walls. Like I used to call it pharyngeal squeeze. We want to see that pharyngeal squeeze because it indicates normal function. And so, you know, sopranos are singing in that part of their range. That's their tessitura. That's where they're, that's where they live anyway so they already kind of naturally have some of this pharyngeal narrowing and um so it it makes sense to me that they're tapping into that as their brightening agents as their brightening a strategy because that's the part of the range where they live and so uh and and other voice types use it as well but i th- i think it's a it's often a, a a primary strategy for sopranos Um, and certainly for people who twang in musical theater that kind of thing and we have you know we have agency in terms of how much we use and so when we use a lot of narrowing we're going to we're going to at some point perceive more twang type qualities. And if we use a little less, we may just say that's a bright trumpety kind of sound, or that's a bright, um, you know, that's a bright soprano type sound. Um, We're not necessarily using so much that we come all the way to twang, um, because there's, there's a continuum there. That we can engage or not engage, but um, but ring is its own beast, and that's really I think related to what we do with the root of the tongue, and um, and this has been my my latest obsession. I know um, sure. I was sort of you know ten or fifteen years on twang, and and um, I feel very satisfied that I've kind of figured out twang and and kind of moved on from that, but. Um, but I started looking in earnest at ring because, again, I kept going back to, is this epilarynx involved in ring or not? Mm-hmm. Because it's not consistently present. So, you know, I'd be scoping singers who were really ringy, beautiful, you know, singers and um, with gorgeous singers form at cluster. And I'd see that epilarynx opening and closing and shifting depending on what vowels they were on. And I kept thinking about uh, Sundberg. Uh, in his research saying that this is present regardless of the vowel. And thinking, well, if it's present regardless of the valve, then we need to find something that is consistently present. And, you know, often we talk about Ring having this narrowed epilarynx, but we forget that that formula that he derived mm-hmm. was, it was more than just the narrowed epilarynx. It was wide ventricles. It was a lowered larynx. It was a, a six to one ratio where right. he said that the pharynx needs to be six times wider than the epilarynx. And, um, and again, I wasn't seeing these conditions being met. And so all the research that came after that, when people would say, Yep, we found narrowed epilarynx. And so therefore that was, you know, they were ringing. And mm-hmm. I would think, well, how was the epilarynx narrowed? Did they have that six to one ratio? Was the larynx lowered? Were the puriforms wide? You know, were we meeting the other conditions? Right. And uh, and in my mind, with, you know, 20,000 endoscopes that I was doing, I was not seeing those conditions being met, And uh, nor in MRI work that I was doing. And so, I began to look for something that could be consistently present and Um, We happen to be in Japan doing some MRI research. I'm on a, I've been on some teams there that have done some work and that's been a really exciting thing because um, I think they have better funding than we do for, for research and so some of the
1: street I've, vendor stuff right
0: right yeah right. so i've been able to go over and, and do some research as a part of an ethno phonetic team uh looking at voice qualities in um street sellers people who do sell cakes and you know it's they a have, remarkable sound
1: if you've never heard it vocal fam it's a remarkable sound
0: yeah so they you know they say this phrase and the the locals can tell the difference it's the same phrase whether you're selling hello kitty stuff or you're selling something really posh it's they say the same phrase which is something that means like come on in and look around um and you know come into the shop and look around or something right. but the way they use their voice the the sound of the voice tells the person out in the market whether it's a whether they're selling like Something high end, or whether they're selling something low end, and so it's just a voice quality change. And so I was hired to come in and, and you know, be a part of this team to kind of investigate what what are the differences in the sounds of these voices. And um, and as kind of an exchange, I got to look at some uh, some of my own research, which was great. And so we were in Japan. We were looking at twang and other things. And um, you have 10 minutes left or 5 minutes left at the end of a session and you don't want to waste that hour because, you know, they're paying $700 an hour or whatever for the time and so, and and part of that hour, you're also not going to put somebody else in there because it takes 20 minutes to get the machine calibrated right. and to get the equipment on and to demetal somebody. And so, you're, you're not just going to go, oh, we got 10 minutes, throw somebody else What's in. That? So, you want to use that subject to the fullest while you've got them in the machine. And so, you know, this person was in there and I said, you know, I just want to see what this kind of kermity kind of sound looks like, and um, I'd been looking at it on endoscopy, but I wanted to see in the MRI what it looked like, and so, I, you know, I kind of go through the, the speaker, and of course, my subject didn't know this was coming, and I said, can you make a Kermit the frog, can you, can you kind of go like that, and she's like, really? what, <laughs> you know, and so um, anyway, she was a good sport, and, she, and I saw the most amazing thing. And that was that she could isolate the root of her tongue from what was happening in the front. And it kind of looked like this ball sort of all of a sudden came out of the root of her tongue toward the larynx. Hmm. And yet the front of the tongue remained exactly where it was. So she did not pull the whole tongue back. She was able to isolate. And, you know, this makes sense to me because it's kind of what we do when you swallow you know, often you push your tongue kind of up to the roof of your mouth, you kind of anchor it there. But you feel the back going back. Yeah, yeah. right. The root of the tongue pulling back, but the front stays in place. And this is because the tongue is this amazing, amazing, marvelous structure. And it's got muscles going every conceivable direction. And all those muscle groups have their own potential for activity. And so, the 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 tongue can move in myriad ways. You know, we can, and and it's why we're able to make such interesting consonants and vowels and and <clears throat> you know we can make taco shapes with our tongue and some people can make that weird W you know with their tip yeah, and yeah. and um I can't do, I that, can't one, do that one but <laughs> I'm clover but you can do the clover well I'm I'm not I'm not as skilled um but I'm I'm still working on it. There's hope right um for my party tricks but you know. I began to think about all the ways that we move our tongue in swallowing. And I began to think of the tongue as the fourth wall. You know, that if you sort of think of the pharynx, it's not really a square, but I think of the lateral walls and the posterior wall. And then the fourth wall really is the back of the tongue. And it's the most movable. It is the most malleable. It is the it is the place we have the greatest potential to make a change in the sound we're making. I mean, we know we can make changes just by shifting a vowel, right? Some vowel modification. We can, yeah. we can make dramatic differences in the voice. And so I began to think, have we been blaming the tongue all this time for things that and not giving it the credit it deserves. And so I began to really look at the tongue and say, okay, Um, maybe we're using this and we don't even realize we're doing it. And maybe maybe we have range of motion that doesn't take us all the way to Kermit the Frog, right? Maybe we can do more subtle shades of kermit or maybe we can do and so we began playing with this concept and i'm absolutely convinced that we are using the root of the tongue all the time to create sounds to shape the back of the tongue and um, that when we add some element of posterior placement of the tongue again keeping the front where it is not letting the front pull back because i think that's what we really object to when when we say singers have tongue root tension or they have problem with their tongue i think it's really it's when they're or when i pull a whole hand back right or or they're going too far they're all the way to kermit and the whole and they, thing goes
1: down yeah. too far the whole yeah.
0: thing goes uh-huh. down right and yeah. so what well, our reaction to that is we got to get rid of all of it we got to throw the whole thing out yeah, right cut the yeah. tongue out get rid of it it's it's a wicked evil beast and <laughs> and it's like no 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 we got to we got to find these happy mediums we have to find the range of motion we have to find the continuum here and so i i want i would love to see us stop blaming the tongue uh for all things well, but you
1: know you know on that note i mean i'm so glad you said that because if you actually vocal fam if you go back to listen to our episode uh right before the pandemic i think it was called twisting tongue tantrums um, oh, yeah. You know, basically, yeah. what I said in that episode was we need to stop trying to eliminate tongue tension and rather talk about coordination, because that the bottom line is that's what it is. What we need is coordination so we can articulate, so that we can shape vowels, so that we can use it to create different resonances and 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 and, and what have you. So I'm so glad you said that. That totally supports, um, wh- you know, where we've been from a perspective. And you know, like on the idea too. I was actually, this was just yesterday, so I'll, I'll just say this one other thing. Just yesterday, I was demonstrating the fact for my students in, in PED that when we were talking about, I was just trying to bring resonance home, and we were finishing our chapter, and I was like, look, when I sing a high, we were talking about the tongue. I said, when I sing a high C, my tongue goes, Yeah, I said it, it, it goes up almost toward my soft palate. That's what it, if I sing the the, <gasps> the final phrase of Boheme and I sing *La Speranza*, my tongue goes. I said, and it's how I get my absolute best resonance on that, on, that, on that shape. And yet we're so, I was using it to talk about the fact that it's okay if you let go of the tip of the tongue into the lower teeth, it's fine, it's gonna be okay. Um, like life will go on. But somewhere, what I was explaining to them, which matches what you're saying, was that somewhere along the vocal tract, you need that point of narrowing that's gonna be beneficial to the resonance strategy that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's just so, that's so spot on. I mean.
0: Yeah. Well, I I started giving lectures, you know, called space invaders because, you know, we've got this this pharyngeal space and and the more open it is, the less the less resonant, ringy, pingy it is. And so we've we've got to have these kind of, you know, these these space invaders, you know, we've we've got to have some kind of space invasion, um, either from the tongue. Or the pharyngeal walls. And those are really the only two things that we can use to create these space invasions. And it's interesting when we add twang or when we add tongue root, the the sensation is actually that we've created space. And I think Mm -hmm. it's the idea of when the walls come in, we can finally feel them.
1: Yes,
0: you know, and so our perception of that is that we've created space, but we've done the opposite of that. We've actually created narrowings. And so if we can get used to this concept of kind of we need these space invaders to create these interesting, wonderful, marvelous sounds. Um, and I, I don't like the term tension, and I've been really vocal Me about either. this. I've I've Me drawn either. my line in the sand, and I've said, you know, I will not cross this line because – Very
1: much aligns with vocal fry, so please.
0: It, first of all, it's a shaming term, right? You have tension. Yeah. And I think it also is something that, that we as teachers sometimes put on our students because then it's the student's fault, right? Yes. You've got yes, tension. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> And I, I just don't. This is don't, going on the clip show. I don't, I don't like it, right? So, yeah. Um, and also, tension implies that you've maintained that contraction after you've stopped the activity. I think we'd be hard pressed to find singers whose tongues are kind of chronic. or whose root kind of stays in that place long after they're done. Um, now, do we feel vocal fatigue after we perform for eight hours or what? Of course, you know, you're going to sure. feel some fatigue, but I just think that term is kind of misused. I think it's loaded. I think it it sends us down a pathway of, of thinking we're chronically stressed or tensed. And, and we may be, we may have some of those issues, but it also implies that the only solution is relaxation. And sometimes yes. we need sometimes we need more energy someplace else to balance something out. And so I'm I'm not a fan of sort of thinking this this term for me does not lead to the correct solution sometimes you might need less effort sometimes you might need more effort and I often say you know the root of the tongue is very strong because we swallow about a thousand times a day and every time we swallow those root muscles get exercised right so we're swallowing all day long about once a minute using the root giving it a good strong you know effort. And so, yes, I do think those root muscles are a little stronger than the muscle in the tip of your tongue, right? Tiny little mm-hmm. tip <laughs> that we have. And so, sometimes I think we need more effort in the front to keep from pulling back. So now, okay. that being said, our, our, is laryngeal massage beneficial? are stretches and yoga beneficial yeah i think they may be in fact i'm i'm a fan i think there's a lot to releasing fascia um getting full range of motion but i think we're not always doing what we think we're doing right so i i think you know students may find these things beneficial um, because it brings awareness to an area They're much more aware. It raises, you know, it may may release fascists so they get full range of motion. So I don't want people to misunderstand and say, boy, she's really attacked me personally because I teach these workshops, right? No, what you're doing in your workshops may be very valuable, but I would love for us to reframe this conversation a little bit into how can we find full range of motion? How can we find, how can we stop blaming and start, accrediting this amazing structure for what it can do for us. How can we, you know, love it and use it and benefit from it and not be so fearful um, of, of, the potential that it has. So anyway, that's my take on the tongue, and I think we're using it to create ring. And I've been I've been talking to some folks who do the math, you know, who do these great equations that sort of calculate, uh, you know, resonances and things. And and I'm hey. hoping because I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a math person, um, but. I'm I'm hoping that eventually somebody will sort of do the the mathematical bit of it, and um, but there you know I've read some research papers that show that when we when we back when we when we uh, change the dimension of the pharynx, and I call I t- I call tongue retraction anterior to posterior narrowing, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. we have okay. la- lateral to medial narrowing, which are the pharyngeal walls kind of up high in the pharynx. So that's L M N lateral to medial narrowing and then we have anterior to posterior narrowing or APN where the tongue root pulls back. And when we do that low pharynx narrowing from front to back, there's some research that shows that it darkens and adds increased energy. And so, um, I think sometimes when we pull the root back, we do get a sense of soulful you know, yeah. so uh, when we pair that, it sounds different when we pair it with a, a thinner vocal fold mass or a thicker vocal fold mass. If we're in sure. sort of thicker vocal fold mass with that root root activity and a lowered larynx, we're going to get more of a ring. Um, if we pair it with a thinner vocal fold mass, we get these great, you know, the night is bitter. Oh, these really kind of rich, soulful kinds of sounds. Yeah, and. Yeah. Uh, For me, discovering that I can do something with that fourth wall has been so transformative because I only ever used LMN as my brightening strategy, upper pharyngeal narrowing. And so, you know, when I added brightness, often it was brighter than I wanted, but I was searching, I was trying to figure out, you know, how to find uh, a richer sound and I, I just couldn't quite put my finger on where to put it. So for me, you know, I'm in my fifties discovering these sounds has been like, wow, you know, it's just opened this whole, this whole world of, of sound possibility and I'm really enjoying playing with it and, and uh, using it with students.
1: Oh, that is, that is just awesome and inspiring. And, oh man, this has just been such, such a great, word you know uh back on that episode that i was talking about of ours i basically said at the end of it i was like you know if you don't want your students to have i I actually i was referring to myself not not anyone else's teaching i said the moment i stopped telling my students that they had tongue tension i noticed that they stopped having tongue tension um so uh this has been this has just been phenomenal phenomenal um uh, before, uh, before we transition to our, because we do ask all our guests about their pop culture interests. Before we do, where can folks, if they want to reach you or learn more about your work, where can mm-hmm. they do that?
0: Um, well, they're they're always free to email me, you know, and I'm I'm happy to share my email. It's Carrie K E R R I E B for my middle initial, and then my last name, Obert, Carrie B. Obert, O-B-E-R-T, at gmail.com. I also do have a a continuing ed website called getvocal-now.com, and um, it's got lectures and things like that on it. We're in the process. I haven't loaded new lectures recently because Um, I'm in the process of kind of changing servers and and doing some things with that. But we're getting ready to launch a whole bunch of new lectures here in the fall. And um, so I I welcome people to that. It's $29 for an entire year's access to those lectures. So um, we've probably got… Yeah, it's it's worth it. There's some really great lectures. I've got um, a guest speaker who does a lecture on performance anxiety, and we've got somebody talking about thyroid tilt, and uh, one of the laryngologists has a lecture there on uh, laryngopharyngeal reflux, and um, and so there's there's a whole lot of good stuff on there. Um, but for for those people who've been going, why aren't there any new lectures recently? It just hang hang in there. We're going to have some new ones coming up really soon. It's just uh, the the current platform is is not super user friendly and it's Uh, you know it's crashing and and so we're we're getting ready to kind of do a big overhaul of the site and and launch some new lectures so but but, yeah feel feel free to to get in touch and I, I always love to hear from people
1: um, okay, great, so Carrie, thank you for that um, so uh, we ask all our guests because we are we like to show that all of us are also just still good old folks who do watch netflix and and <laughs> things of this nature. Do you have any pop culture interests and we you there 's no uh limit here we 've had everything from the yes fish. i I love the same Marvel movies that you oh, do yeah, yeah, yeah. to crossword puzzles to breeding of course Scott and his breeding tropical, tropical fish. fish. Um. To uh, to anything else, anything anything you'd be willing to share with the vocal fam?
0: Well, I I love watching something on Netflix or Hulu or whatever, and you know I my job is hard. I mean, we we see patients all day long. There's often they're medically very fragile. You're calling an ambulance for them, oh. you know, and 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 so it, it's it's a tough job. i often doing paperwork quite late. So when I get done at the end of the day and my brain is completely fried i'm ready to watch something good on 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 tv and sort of get lost in it you know and and turn the day off and so um yeah i love i mean my my tastes are quite varied i i a Walking Dead fan. I don't know if that will surprise you, but I've I've loved The Walking Dead. And if you're a fan, you know, I always say Daryl's my boyfriend um, because (laughs) if I have to live in the zombie apocalypse... You know, I want Daryl with me. But anyway, sure. and uh, so friends, you know, friends got me a, a picture of Daryl from my bedroom. But no. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so funny because he wouldn't be my boyfriend in real life, you know, because I, I wouldn't choose that kind of personality in real life. But in the zombie apocalypse, it's I would. Zomb-
1: Hey, I mean, listen, I, day day think, I think, you know, zombie apocalypse, we all got to do what we got to do to survive. So that's right. I mean, that's yeah. right.
0: So, yeah, I love that. I've I, uh, been watching evil on Paramount. And and but the, my latest binge was this great show called uh, Maid. On uh, MAID on nice. uh, Netflix, and it's it's well worth. It's a mini series, and it's a it's a single mom story, which is of course why oh, I related phenomenal. to this. Okay, and um, you know I've been a single mom for most of my son's life, and since he was six months old, and you know you're you're everything. When you're a single mom, you're everything. You're yeah. you know you're breadwinner, chief bottle washer, uh, you know all all of the things, and I could. Yeah. So relate to this person who was venturing out. Um, she's coming out of an abusive relationship and she doesn't have any family support. Her mother's bipolar and and her mother's Andy McDowell, and who's fantastic as oh, okay. this bipolar. I was just but, up the cast. Okay. Yeah. Well, and Andy McDowell's daughter plays the lead. And oh. so she they're just so there's there's a real chemistry there because they yeah. are mother-daughter in real life. Sure. And so, it's well worth it. But the thing that's so interesting to me about this series, because we've seen series of, you know, single mom leaves abusive husband, strikes out on her own, right? That's nothing new. But I thought what was so well done about the series was um, how hard it is to utilize government resources, and I see this in home health, you know, and in the work yeah. that I do with patients that, you know, there are programs, but it's like in the series, you know, she leaves, and it's, well, you can live in this housing situation, but you have to have a job, but I can't have a job if I don't have an address, yeah. right? So, I mean, it's it's these kinds of um, scenarios that are yeah. constantly um, causing her issues, and Um, and she's also got to be back to pick up the daughter and back by the such-and-such and and just sort of making this, you know, we, we, we have this sense, I think, here in the States, especially that there are so many programs and that People have so many resources, and they're just handed to them. And and so I I thought, wow, this is a really interesting look at um, what it's like to actually use the resources and yeah. um, nice. and to be able to benefit from these things. So I highly recommend the series. And Andy McDowell is just brilliant as a bipolar sure. person who you know is sort of living on the fringe. And um, yeah, yeah right. definitely.
1: Thank you for that. Thank th- I, I I had not heard of that, so I'm glad to know that it exists. Said yeah. you,
0: you know I oh, had good. not come across it. No.
1: Okay, very very good, Vocal Fam. Check out Made that's on Netflix you said? Made it's not, on Netflix, Netflix. yeah. Netflix? Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Um so check that out, Vocal Fam. Um, listen, Carrie. This has been our pleasure mm-hmm. and an honor to have you. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with the Vocal Fam. I've wanted to do this episode for quite some time. So super excited that you shared some time with us. We we yes. we appreciate it.
0: Thank you. And we we just want to say thank you to you too. I, I mean, I've listened to several episodes, and and um, it's you know it's such a wonderful service that you all are providing, and and um, and it it's it's really nice to be able to tap into so many of these experts that you've had on. And, Mm. and I, you know, I do home health, so I'm driving in my car a lot and I'm able, I'm able to tune into episodes between houses and, and uh, you know, I go into houses sort of singing your, your little, your little oh, the <laughs> <laughs> yes and bacon frying in my head you know the but. Be- that that
1: that was literally you know when we started sarah was very suspicious of this whole en- endeavor except it when was. i when i sent the idea to she and michael who were the original two co-hosts when they were still students when they were still graduate students uh michael within 30 minutes I was very quick. That it, he was within like, 30 like, minutes theme
0: song. sent
1: us the basic audio of the theme song within 30 minutes. Um, nice.
0: What took it? What took us so long? You know, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I,
1: I, I wish I knew. Um, I mean, come on. So, I mean, absolutely. Come on. Anyway, uh, Sarah, what'd you have for breakfast?
0: Uh, That same yogurt from last week, that like Icelandic, I don't know. Sarah's feeling very bougie yogurt,
1: vocal fam. I am feeling very bougie yogurt.
0: That's that's, that's what she's
1: telling me. It's
0: good. I mean... Also, I had bought them all at the same time, so like I'm gonna eat them. Anyway,
1: Vocal Fam, we are so glad you've been here for this episode. Also, Vocal yes. Fam, Perna started binging Mr. Robot. Who didn't tell me about this show in 2015? Who else knows about this? Who show? Who forgot to tell it. Perna that he would have loved this show? I don't know wh- so how in the world no one had ever told me about this show until the last two weeks. This is amazing. Also, I hadn't figured out that, that Remy Malik was really that all that and a bag of chips. I now yeah. understand why these people think that he's like the actor of this generation. Oh my gosh, this show is incredible. It's on, uh, what are we watching it on? Uh, Prime. It's on Prime. Oh, okay. Um, it was a USA original, and it's, uh, it's uh, wow-wee. Anyway, I wanted to share that this week. because I,
0: <laughs> Holy cow. Um, well, it was, it was not... meant to be at this time for you. Now you and can. It's, yeah.
1: I, I guess, and it's also not. Uh, it's not going to like make you hate life anymore. Like you oh, know, like well some watching. It. It's watch not. It. It's not like to... watching Succession or something like that, which is going to just make you wish that like you just had never hate. watched it. Um, uh, it. It's 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 not like that, Vocal Fam. It's 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 a drama, but it's not like you. Uh, it's very. Um, it's a hacker who is trying to sort of basically take down Apple, essentially. Um, ah, is, is, that's is, cool. Uh, sort of the basic premise of season one so far. So any, anyway, all right, vocal Fan, that's it for us. We're out. Peace.